You're listening to Some Pulp on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. Welcome to episode seven of Some Pulp. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards, and I'm joined by Michael Edwards and Justin Edwards. Hey, hey. What's up, dude? In this episode, we're going to examine the phenomenon of film and TV noir in the 50s and 60s and how it defined or reflected a certain mood or even worldview in post-war America. It's typified by the kinds of stories and characters that populate the teleplays and screenplays of the era. Yes, I'm excited about this topic, and I thought a um, a great way to start would be to provide at least sort of a you know a starting definition wherever we take it as we examine the, the variations um, of what what is film noir or TV noir and what does it come from and you know the simple Wikipedia answer is you know there's some roots in like early German cinematography some of the expressionist stuff but uh, I think what most people think of is kind of a post great depression you know there's a hard-boiled detective there's a private eye there's a there's a drifter there's kind of these various you know rogues gallery of of grotesques and uh this kind of moodiness and that's what i think of immediately with noir other than like real snappy moody piano music i agree i think uh just to follow that up um for those who aren't familiar it does have that stereotypical you know the fedora and the blinds and the office um but i think as we'll see while talking today like the definition has grown and spread and become an entity of itself where it's not just even about cinematography but um even just like moods and tones so right and there's there's plenty of uh, tropes to uh, explore and uh, that epitomize what a lot of people sense and i uh I have to say, you know, noir to me, you know, first of all, it's a French word that basically means black. And, uh, you know, that can describe a person, a mood, uh, a, cer- a certain circumstance, a certain sequence of events. And uh, all of them sort of add up to uh, what I, as a child, when I didn't know what I was experiencing, uh, left me with a sense of uh, uh dissonance of you know something's not right the the film is ended the episode is ended but there's still things unresolved and unresolved in the story but but even in you know in a sense unresolved in me i i didn't know what i was to think about this whatever it was i had heard or watched or uh, read um by the time uh, you were born noir had at least a decade or two or more depending on how far you want to stretch it back under its belt what did the what was noir like in your childhood, and like how had it already evolved somewhat? Well, let me uh, talk about an experience I had at a drive-in movie. I was about eight. Um, my parents did not use babysitters. Uh, I was an only child, uh, but uh, they they weren't comfortable with with the the whole babysitting routine and uh although I had my grandparents nearby if they wanted to go to a drive-in movie they just took me and I you know stayed in the in the back seat and you know the expectation was it's going to get dark you're going to get tired 
and uh, you know you'll fall asleep. So whatever we're watching, uh, I mean the the rating system wasn't in place. It wasn't like we're going to an R-rated movie or or a PG thirteen movie. Uh, but of course, I never went to sleep, and I <laughs> I always watched whatever my parents had brought me to. And uh, one time, I don't think they had read the reviews or had any idea what Night of the Hunter, a famous noir movie uh, with uh, Robert Mitchum. Uh, who had all sorts of sinister type characters uh, for him to play in the in the fifties and you know in the in the early sixties he becomes more of a diverse uh, uh, actor but he's typically you know a kind of a sinister and uh, you know uh, menacing character and in this particular movie there there are some children in the movie the the uh, you know, children of a of a a widow and she happens to you know, Mary Robert Mitchum, who is some of this, some kind of weird fundamentalist preacher of some sort, who has love uh, tattooed on the fingers of one hand and, and uh, hate on the other, and it just has all these characteristics. They they add up a menacing uh, 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 sort of anti father figure. Uh, it's black and white movie, and uh, the, the bottom line is that the children probably know about an inheritance um, and a, uh, a kind of uh, lost treasure that uh, their uh, their father, who's deceased, uh, left for them and the family. And basically, Robert Mitchum has married into this family to get that money, and. Uh, you know, it's it's all basically happens at night. The kids are are on the run. There, you know, their mom is not there, and I just, <laughs> you know, I I could not imagine why I was watching this. You know, why why were my parents watching this? Uh, but you know, it was you know kind of a thrill uh, uh, movie f- of the times, and of course the, the he he gets it in the end. But in the meantime, I you know my heart beat fast for two hours while I was waiting for this to end. It was like being on an eternal roller coaster. And uh, it's not that my parents were dragging me to this to to scare me. Uh, You know, they they really thought I probably would fall asleep. But, you know, I I, it kept my attention. And, and, you know, what I was experiencing, I think, was this noir, this this feeling of um, of uh, unhealthy, fearful, uh, anything can happen kind of uh, of experience and uh, when you experience it in a movie uh, it stays with you because the images get a hold of your your consciousness your dream life and uh, i i know I, I i spent days maybe weeks thinking about that movie and i didn't want to go to bed anymore because i didn't want to see robert mitchum in the in the mirror <laughs> staying staring back at me yeah in your dreams or in real life yeah, exactly. <laughs> As he was wont to do. <laughs> I mean, do you, uh, just, just stepping back a bit too, um, is, is noir, um, at the risk of trying to ask for generalizations, is it expressing anything culturally in America? And I know in some senses it's imported from the, the art of other nations, but it's also you kind of uniquely American in how it gets expressed. Um, you know, people like to kind of wave their hands and say, you know, invasion of the body snatchers or some of these other things are, you know, fears of communism or, you know, like some of these like maybe tropey generalizations about what that kind of sci-fi expressed. And does noir have any analog like that to our culture at large? Well, I would I would tie it to a couple of things. One is 
there's the exhilaration of having won a war, won the world war, and you know the, the Americans come back as as international heroes, uh, and uh, and so the the, the uh, mid to late forties are kind of times of 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 a triumphalism about the American spirit and. And, uh, you know, is it possible we could be the world's policeman? I mean, would we be able to, <laughs> you know, go into Korea and do the same thing? And, of course, Korea didn't quite turn out uh, like, uh, you know, the battles in France still and Germany and Italy. One. Yeah. Uh, still. And, you know, the, uh, you know the, the great hero of, of uh, World War II was Dwight Eisenhower, who became president in 1952. And, uh, you know, from 52 to 58, which is, you know, Roughly my first eight, you know, six to eight years of life, uh, you know, there, there's a lull in America. There are people who are waiting for something as exciting but less deadly to happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's a boom. You know, we, we, many of us uh, know the term baby boomers comes out of the, the children born when the, when the soldiers return. And, and there's a whole generation of, of uh, children and teenagers and adolescents who who become uh, inheritors of some great tradition, but we don't know why it's great. We you know we we don't have anything tangible. We we didn't fight in the war, um, and uh, you know although Vietnam is ahead of us, you know in the in the uh, early sixties, you know that's a very unpopular war. It's a it's an unwinnable war, and so there's this like ten year period. I would say. 55 to 65, where uh, America's uh, kind of lost some confidence, lost some sense of purpose and direction. And so TV and, and movies of the time are kind of filled with, you know, true crime and, and really dark and, and, and deadly uh, villains. And, uh, uh, and then into the 60s, you, you have this series of producers. Uh, I'll mention a couple that, that we have... Uh, uh, you know, talked about before in passing, uh, uh, Roy Huggins, uh, Quinn Martin, and uh, s- several others, uh, certainly Orson Welles, although he didn't work in TV, uh, he's very influential. Uh, they create these series of loners or people on the run. And I think like uh, uh, the Route 66 uh, TV series, it presents America with this sense of listlessness and, and you know, wanting something to happen. And, uh, you know, there, there's nothing going to happen as uh, invigorating and as, and as uh, triumphal as World War II uh, in anybody's lifetime and, 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 and not since then. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't have a reason to, be, to, to feel heroic. We don't have a reason to be... Uh, noble and majestic in in the sweep of democracy across the the lands and uh, it it doesn't really get better uh in the in the 50s and 60s i i mean even in the the tropey uh you know the private eye it's often you you think of the stereotype of that storyline it's you know he's got his office and it's a surprise when someone visits him it's like oh i was like my business was dead and suddenly this one old friend slash fiend comes out of my past and has a request and it kind of launches you into this journey of uh, weird, dark, black emotions and, and dissonance. Um, one of the other, I guess, attributes of noir that I wanted to float out there to, you know, to, to those that have more experience and know more about this genre um, that I've always kind of observed is noir always seems like 
it's not the good versus the bad. It's the stupid versus the smart. And it's like, you know, you're naive or you're corrupted, but smart. And it's sort of, um, maybe, you know, this obviously wouldn't be a universal thing, but it's kind of a, a different, a different spectrum at play in, in your character spread. For sure. They definitely don't, um, play the black and white, good guy, bad guy. They enjoy the moral gray area that everybody can make good decisions or bad decisions. And you get wrapped up in the mystery unraveling because you're wanting to see how someone will act one way or another. Cause you, you like to assign, you know, like, Oh, that's, that's the guy I'm identifying with. And yet look at these decisions he's making. Um, and it keeps it a little convoluted. So you're always guessing and it's that, that that's the great mystery and fun of noir is not quite knowing what everybody's going to do in each situation. Um, but yeah, it's a battle of wits very often, um, which you always enjoy. And in some ways, uh, since people's motivations are always kind of a mystery in noir, you don't know who their allegiances are, um, what they're hiding. Um, it's, it's almost like instead of a comedy of errors, it sometimes it's a tragedy of errors where <laughs> people make a decision on what they thought and they were so wrong about this person, but you shot them and they were actually on your side and, oh no. <laughs> well, to me, there's also a shift. There's a gregariousness about, uh, films in the forties, uh, uh, before the, the the wars end, and then the, you know the climax of the of the war, where where people like to be out and about and in community, and there's a, a definite shift toward individualism in in the fifties, and the characters that are are popular and are heroic are not the the person who rallies everyone together to put on a show like a, a Mickey Rooney kind of uh, attitude, but more along the lines of this privatization of emotion and of motive and of uh, uh, outreach toward the, the public. You, you really want to be alone and you withdraw from society. And you, as a private eye particularly, and I'm thinking of somebody like uh, David Jansen who had two pivotal uh, pivotal, not pivotal. <laughs> That's <laughs> debatable. That's something capable of being pivoted. Uh, like Michael Jordan. Um <laughs> David Jansen plays Richard Diamond, private eye, or actually private detective. He's not even called a private eye. He's a private detective. And, there, and there's some uh, terrific uh, YouTube uh, episodes that are in full that, that are available. Um, and uh, he does the voiceover, which has become sort of a, a parody of the, of the traditional private eye. But he does a great voiceover in late 1950s uh, TV and he he's a fellow who exists in the half light of being a hero and uh, he he's the one whose secretary takes care of him but she's never shown in any episode you always see her either from behind but you see her uh her her feet or her her high heels and you hear her voice but you don't actually ever see her uh, and so I, I, I was listening to a broadcast uh, podcast the other day about these things, and uh, what what they suggested was uh, late '70s shows and early '80s shows like Remington Steel or Moonlighting ha- take their cue from you know Richard Diamond, Private Eye, because they they deliberately 
don't reveal uh, a certain main character uh, until the very end of the series, and uh, most of the time they're 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 shrouded in mystery. And uh, and then David Jansen is chosen by by Roy Huggins for the Fugitive to to be Richard Kimball, uh, a man who's uh, not searching for somebody except for the killer of his wife, and he has to do it as a man on the run. And so he's got conflicted uh, interest in in moving from town to town, trying to escape being reincarcerated. Uh, and while he's trying to find out the real killer of his his wife, and so those are are exemplary of this noir feeling. And uh, you know, in the in the late fifties, does does the American man, the American father, feel like he's he's being watched? He's you know, is he being you know uh, uh, put on trial? Uh, is that is that why these these appeal to us? And then you know, very explicitly, the fugitive. Uh, you know, he he is being accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's always on the run, but he's also a virtuous man, and he was a doctor. And so every episode, he's not only looking for Lieutenant Gerard uh, and and making sure that he's uh, he's not in this town yet to find me. Uh, while you you know uh, <laughs> use your surgical skills to help a child who's fallen. Uh, or you uh, you use your um, your uh, medical discipline to help a uh, a, a widow get through uh, the the loss of her husband or the loss of a child. And every week, somebody's loss is on trial. And so, you know, is America in the sixties kind of a sense of has a sense of loss and of of uh, impending doom? If this haven't hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. And uh, and I, I think that's what's going on in in some of these episodes, and there's there's others we can talk about, but I think that's that that show that lasts four seasons because it does have a resolution. Uh, you know, keep keeps Richard Kimball in the in the public eye, and you know it also has the exhilaration of he is a different person every week because he has to take on a new identity, uh, you know, a new name, and uh, you know, like Quantum Leap. <laughs> yeah, except that in Quantum Leap, of course, the mechanism for him to uh, to leap or get into this new circumstance is he's actually taking on the identity or the or the body of a real person who existed in a in a, another circumstance uh, and has a role to play uh, that kind of is, is a script, you know, that the uh, I can't remember the name of the other character, not the the Scott uh, uh, Ziggy. <laughs> Yeah, Ziggy, this this robotic figure of some kind. Uh, Richard Kimball has to come up with this new identity every week on his own, and of course with the, the stable of writers who are <laughs> scripting each yeah. week. But uh, um, so one of the other tropes I'd love to hear you or Justin comment on is a. Uh, so we have this sort of we've kind of well established the misanthropic, cynical detective, or you know, down and out of his luck male. Um, and kind of counterpart to that in a lot of noir would be the uh, the the femme fatale, the seductive, the the beautiful woman who, with mysterious motivations, that is helping him. Maybe not. Don't know. Um, and that that kind of is definitely another dominant, you know, casting role in a lot of these uh, in this genre. And how does that play with with culture? As how does that develop over um, the different examples of noir? Well, you just described just about every character Barbara Stanwyck played in the in the late forties, uh, and 
you know, in the Richard Diamond character I was just talking about, the, the reason that um, his secretary is never shown in, in an episode, but you hear her voice, is that she's so incredibly beautiful and seductive that you know, she she would uh, overwhelm the show, and of course that was uh, again a kind of parody of, of, of <laughs> certain certain uh, femme fatales. But you know, uh, you know, David Jansen, nevertheless, as as this this private detective, he meets enough of these lonely, abandoned uh, women in 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 each episode. That uh, and, and they're almost immediately put in jeopardy of some sort by another, you know, set of hoodlums or criminals, uh, and, and he's he's got to both uh, figure out what's really going on, uh, lest he become a victim of hers or the the hoodlums who are after her or that that she's in cahoots with, uh, and you know, again, it's kind of one of these tropes where you'd think by now. Richard Diamond would know not to take that phone call, you know, not to open the uh, the door, uh, but you know he, he always does because you know he's got a he's got a life to lead and he's got a world to save, even though he really doesn't want to leave his apartment. And, um, well, in in light of where you came into, you know, you saw Night of the Hunters, kind of your first experience that you remember. Um, it's it's curious to kind of chart. That I, I feel like by the, the later 50s that noir is very well established already. I mean, we've already had some of the greatest classics of all time at that point. Um, but then you're starting to see them get to play with a little. And I don't know if that's because of just Cold War things starting up and, you know, seeing that, you know, noir stretches beyond just the detective genre, but then becomes, you know, moods and tones that are borrowed across other films of the times. Um, yeah. When does the spy become noir? Well, uh, I didn't see it when I was younger, but, you know, uh, Orson Welles, uh, who, who did the famous 1939 broadcast, War of the Worlds, you know, the, the Martians have landed kind of, of uh, trope, uh, does The Third Man, which is post-war, uh, and all sorts of intrigue, and you don't know who you can trust. Uh, and then, you know, toward the end of the 50s, uh, a movie uh, called Touch of Evil, which uh, in some ways is is miscast. Uh, you know, I have Charlton Heston playing a, a Mexican policeman uh, and so forth, but it, it really is dramatically illustrative of this feeling. He has a of, good mustache in the screenshot. Yeah, he He's does. to call it out. <laughs> he does. Uh, but Janet Lee, you know, I kind of gets ready to play the role that she plays in Psycho, by playing this role, uh, the the paranoia is so thick, uh, and it's there's like a, like a uh, there's a drug culture. It's uh, decadent uh, L.A. You know, L.A. confidential kind of of uh, of uh, uh, sense of foreboding and, and expectation of evil. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the title is wonderfully uh, understated. It's there's not just a touch of evil. I mean, evil is thoroughly, <laughs> thoroughly thick in this particular screenplay. And uh, you know, I think when it was released, we didn't even get the version. Uh, Orson Welles never gets to release the version of the movie he actually shot or wanted to use. Uh, and then it's restored later. But it has that tracking shot that's famous at the very beginning of the of the show that. Uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, HBO series uh, 
uh, true detective uh, took advantage of uh, toward the end of the, of the season where they have this long, long episode, one shot carried over, you know, lots of millimeters of, uh, of space and, uh, and uh, dialogue. But uh, to, to me, I, I, you know, the Cold War is not something while we were in it that we had very good uh, ways of uh, talking about it. And so uh, we could only do it uh, with, uh, you know, British spy novelists uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Le Carre and so forth and the, the, the George Smiley character. Uh, but that, that kind of comes after the experience of the Cold War rather than during it for, for me. Uh, and, of course, you know, the, the big episode, the, the dramatic, uh, you know, the day the music died sort of experience is, is the Kennedy assassination, which almost immediately and very literally uh, is the, the, uh, the world's biggest conspiracy. And who did this and why and how many gunmen were there? And, and I collected as a, I would have been like 11 when this happened, uh, over the next several years, I collected every book written about the Kennedy assassination. I think I even had my own copy of the Warren Report, uh, which I never read. It just sat there because you know, <laughs> it's just legalese stuff, and you, can, you can't really make any sense uh, of it. Thanks to, thanks to recent X-Men movies, we know it was Magneto that, that bent the, the bullet <laughs> <Exactly>. around. <laughs> Not the yeah. cigarette-smoking man? <laughs> no. Sorry, spoiler, Shelby. <laughs> uh, but but you know, I think that the, the Kennedy assassination, obviously a horrendous event for... Uh, the, the the country and uh, you know we'll probably end up having an episode soon for for some pulp about the uh, the 1964 election campaign between Goldwater and Johnson, which I actually participated in in my school as a uh, an advocate for Goldwater that year, which is of course the wrong side to be on. Uh, in the wrong in side of, of history. The, well, I, it was the wrong side of of that particular sixth grade debate that I participated <laughs> in. <laughs> Uh, at any rate, uh, it had Ronald Reagan going for it, and I think that's that's one of the attractions. But uh, that that's such a I'll try to say it again pivotal event in American culture and history. You know, nobody could believe anybody anymore. Uh, you certainly didn't trust the government. You certainly didn't trust the the CIA. Uh, you're not even sure. You know, you want to trust. Uh, uh, your local police, because everybody is in, you know, in, in, indicted, so to speak, by this uh, turn of events. Uh, and then on top of all that, in that year, you have the, the civil rights campaigns that, that uh, you know, m- made the South a deadly place to be, particularly if you were a, an African-American. And uh, so the whole world of, of, of American nobility is shattered. And so the, the TV shows especially reflect that. And there are all these TV shows like, you know, Chuck Connors, who was the, 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 the rifleman who was, you know, epitome of justice. He, he participates in a, in a series called Branded. It's set in the post-Civil War days where he is unjustly accused of being a traitor. And uh, so he spends three seasons um, in the Old West trying to find these these uh, uh, witnesses who will testify that he didn't betray the Union Army. And you have all of these kinds of things that, you know, uh, early, early 70s, we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, the, the most, you know, uh, 
unbelievable, creepy experience of going to a movie was the parallax view, uh, which was not shot with certain lighting. It wasn't black and white. It was a, you know, a full color movie, but it, it really epitomizes the, the paranoia uh, of the, of the people. Uh, you know, Alan J. Uh, Pakula is, uh, is a great, you know, uh, uh, cinematographer and a director of, of paranoia. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an era of, Disquiet and of uh, a sense of uh, the, uh, as they say, the other shoe waiting to to drop, and you know how close were we to Khrushchev bombing us from Cuba, and where, where you know Jack Kennedy basically says, uh, "Remove your 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 bombs from Cuba, or we will blockade," and so on and so forth. And you know, uh, there, there's a particular Twilight Zone episode uh, that. That talks about the paranoia and and the the lack of any kind of community uh, spirit, any any sense of we're all in this together. Uh, that uh, I think it's it's called the monsters uh, are 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 out on Maple Street, and uh, in some ways it's disguised as a as an uh, an alien invasion story. But really, Rod Serling's getting at the fact that we've lost trust in each other, and. Uh, it's uh, it's also you know, again one of those brilliant half hour uh, episodes. I thought it might be fun to uh, take a little tour through more modern, um, you know, eighties onward. I'll, I'll say is modern just because that's when I was born. Um, uh, film and, and TV and, and things that definitely call back to noir, and whether it's just an aesthetic or a feature of the the structure of the plot. And just some of our favorites, and I mean, I definitely find that if I, if I make a list of you know the the ten or fifty movies that I love deeply, there's a, quite a lot of noir on the list. You know, you can bring Dark City or L.A. Confidential or you know Blade Runner. You might bring up, um, which I think you could make a pretty strong argument that Blade Runner has a lot of very non-noir elements, but um, definitely the the, the aesthetic um, mixing with the sci-fi. Well, and the fact that it's set in Los Angeles. I mean. Yeah, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> and he's a, he happens to be a kind of detective. Yeah, and it, and it was um, inspired by this uh, 1940s French detective, actually. Um, Dad, do you remember his name real quick? He's in uh, Alphaville. Eddie Constantine plays him. Um, but he has, you know, it's the big trench coats, the fedoras, the stairwells, and the, you know, Strange, uh, decaying know. infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, it's uh, Lemmy. Lemmy caution. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But seeing those elements show up in a Blade Runner and going like, "Yes, what a you know, great nod cinematically referencing." And I'd, I'd love to talk a little about Dark City, just because that's a film that I still find a lot of people missed. Just as an, an amazing, you might say, a remix of of noir and and kind of spinning it in a new direction. Definitely, it it starts out like point blank, no holds barred noir for at least maybe forty minutes or so till you finally really figure out what's going on with the character too. I think that's part of noir's experience is always wanting to put you in as much paranoia as its characters are. Um, and again, Dark City is always one of those surprises for, for people to go like, wait, this, this is really good. I didn't realize, you know, for whatever they've heard or they just missed it back then. Um, 
the one thing to always say though is to watch the director's cut version, right. and not the version with all the voiceover that spoils everything. Which, ironically, voiceover is a very prominent feature of noir, and it's actually what ruins Dark City. <laughs> yeah, and uh, has that in common with Blade Runner's story with the voiceover as well. I think one other feature of Dark City, real quick, that now that we're talking about, it, I'm remembering that. Um, noir has a, a strong odor of nostalgia to it. And maybe this is just one branch of noir, but that's kind of the, the main hook in Dark City is where is Shell Beach? I want to get to Shell Beach. And there's kind of this this uh, longing for this thing you can't access. Dad, if you could speak to the, kind of the role of voiceover in, in noir and how is it different from other forms of narration that may have been popular in media? Yeah, well, it, you know, it's an initial uh, appearance from my point of view, is uh, actually taken directly from the the uh, hard-boiled detective novels that people like Dashiell Hammett and uh, Ross McDonald and and uh, you know several other you know famous writers, uh, many Los Angeles based, uh, in which you know the strong uh, first-person narrator uh, is important to to kind of keep keep the building blocks of the mystery or the murder or, or whatever it is you're trying to solve kind of in front of the, uh, the audience, uh, even if you have to undermine it later. And I think that's you know, almost immediately the, the detective writers of the, of the 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, again, set up strong narration just so it can be undermined and uh, then you see that happening uh, with the, the movie versions and uh, and uh, you, know, we, you know what's the purpose of the voiceover narration uh, sometimes it's to let the audience know things that the person giving you that no, uh, yeah, the dramatic narration, irony. yeah uh, so that so that uh you know, they've got to be surprised by something that you're not, and you've got to be surprised by something that uh, uh, wasn't, you know, covered explicitly. But if you go back and, you know, hear that story again or, or read that book or, you know, you say, oh, how did I miss it? And, and so it, it's, a, it's a building block of narration and of, of plot that depending upon, you know, how skillful the director or the writer or the actor is, uh, you know, can can make that combination work, but it's uh, it's in some ways uh, as as one of the, uh, the 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 people I was listening to the other day, you know, it, it goes back as far as Homer's Odyssey uh, and <laughs> Virgil's Iliad in in terms of the story you're telling is actually a diversion or a sleight of hand because this other thing's going to happen. And it's going to be embedded in that narrative, and you were set up by by that narration to expect this to happen one, two, three, when really one, two, three don't even exist, or, or they're what, you know MacGuffins, as you know, uh, I guess Hitchcock coined that that term. Yeah, you, you almost think of usual suspects for having a frame narrative in that way of uh, kind of surprising you and and changing things up. Yeah, yeah, and. So, you know, I want to go back to The Fugitive for a minute. In one sense, you always know how every episode is going to end until the final episode. He's nearly going to get caught, but he's not going to get caught. Uh, or he's going to turn himself in only to show his noble character and how nobody who could do what he just did, you know, saving that child, you know, uh, 
you know, ending that uh, that threat to the town's mayor, or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, is that it also could, with Tommy Lee Jones saying, "Just come in, I don't care. It's time to end this, Richard." Well, Kimmel. you know, the the movie. <laughs> Uh, which has its own history and and uh, would be again interesting for a, a a a class you were teaching just on the fugitive and the fugitive by the way has a is one of the few uh, series that has such an in depth literary look at it you know Stanley Fish this this you know great uh, literary scholar of Milton uh, and also famous for a lot of his uh, sort of deconstructionist tricks in, in uh, analyzing literature, happened to love The Fugitive and wrote a book called The Fugitive in Flight. And, and I bought that book several years ago and reread it uh, over the last few days. And he does a great job of depicting you know, how, how The Fugitive in the movie in some ways compresses everything that the four years of the of the episodes uh, uh, you know, attempted to produce over time, but they have to do it in two hours, and uh, and so so uh, uh, you know, Tommy Lee Jones is the uh, the the moral compass that keeps the thing moving, uh, while uh, you know Harrison Ford gets to you know uh, debate or 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 have speeches exchanged with the uh, the other evil doctor who's uh, present in the movie. <laughs> While he you know chases the uh, the one armed man, I like this quote. So mentioning Stanley Fish's book, uh, you have this quote here in our notes um, where he says, "No one in the fugitive ever relaxes, and as soon as you watch, you can't relax either. Even though for long stretches, absolutely nothing happens. It was the combination of nonstop tension with the relative absence of slam bang action that attracted me. And I, I, I mean." The Fugitive may be like a shining example of this, but that kind of does ring true of noir to me. It's not really about action whatsoever, even though there might be little muted moments that, you know, there's a chase or there's, you know, a little bit of a gunfight, but it's not really about the action. It's about the motivations and the allegiances of all these people that are mixed together. Yeah, no, I, I think I think he's, he's right. And so, of course, the movie then, which... Uh, you know, Roy Huggins says he he sort of is given some some credit for consulting on it, but it you know to, to him it doesn't really epitomize what the fugitive that he was associated with was really about, because it does have those slam uh, slam bang action uh, episodes in it, and uh, uh, without that tension, without you know the ability to you know draw out over you know a series. Uh, some of these uh, darker moments that don't have a gun in your face or a jump from a train and so forth, um, it, it's not realized the way that you would you would want your vision of what this is going to 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 be. And uh, you know, Roy, Roy Huggins again as as a uh, atypical Hollywood producer of the of the fifties through the the nineties, uh, and and who also I'll point out again was the. Uh, uh, showrunner, though the term wasn't used uh, back then, for Maverick. You know, again, the, the greatest TV Western of, of uh, the uh, 50s and 60s uh, and, the, and The Fugitive. Uh, but it, it, it's that subtlety. Uh, you've got to have some action uh, in order to, to, to move things along on a TV show. Uh, otherwise, you've got a... Uh, 
you've got Downton Abbey, or you know, you've got you've got you know the thrill of it is uh, listening to the dialogue and the and the witty remarks and so forth, and not everybody can carry that off. And American television is not really famous <laughs> for having great eloquence uh, as part of the uh, the uh, the trope of the of a particular series. Um, although you know we we can all think of of uh, shows, and I would throw in Firefly at this point, uh, that deserve better. But I think Firefly is a kind of noir. So explain uh, science that. Fiction. How, how is Firefly noir? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in addition to being many other things, like, you know, a space western, it's got horses, it's got spaceships. Uh, I think every, nearly every episode of Firefly has this, this sense of unease, uh, you know, talking about a, a show in which nobody ever gets to relax. I mean, there's either drama on the ship or off the ship because they're basically, you know, uh, interplanetary uh, merchants of both uh, ill-gotten goods or uh, you know, on the run from the uh, the Empire. And each of the characters... Uh, and particularly, you know, people like Wash, the the pilot. But eventually, when uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, doctor and his sister come on board, uh, everything I think uh, in each episode is just filled with lots and lots of, of tension. None of which does get to be resolved in the in the TV show, but does get resolved in Serenity. Uh, so uh, I, I think there's just all sorts of things always going on. And I think you have a strong uh, Richard Kimball-type character in, uh, in Mal Reynolds. Every, every, every port of call, he's, he's uh, on the run from somebody else who uh, either owe him money or he owes them money. And he's got he's to keep the, uh, the, uh, the, the game going. I'm wondering if if uh, either of you can think of any other like modern examples of something that's noir in some way that may be surprising, or you wouldn't at first think like, oh yeah, that is noir. I don't know if it's a, a surprise so much because I do get it attributed it a lot, but um, a lot of the Coen brothers owe a lot to noir. Even in just their light lighter comedies, they have just their that Coen brothers tone where they get to ride that edge of. You know, a lot of manic, you know, characters who repeat things over and over, but then, again, always that motivations are unclear and you don't get explanations in Coen Brothers movies. And, you know, you are there to explore these characters with them and, and, you know, go on a journey, but it's not about all the action or the plot. It's very often that experience and that tone that you spend with them. I've also heard the argument a lot that they, they like to torture their characters. And that's something you probably could say you see in noir a lot is there, these characters are kind of tortured in their situation. Yeah. I think they really take literally protagonists as in the one who has agony all the time, right? You are the receiver of agony (laughs) and they put them through it. Every single one. Yeah, and another you know recent one that I'm I'm excited to see how he pulls this into, in particular the Star Wars universe was Ryan Johnson as a director started in film noir. He did this high school mystery called Brick, um, and then his next movie was you know a, a foray into kind of a con man you know a lighter you know comedic take 
at times, still some noir to it for sure. And then I would say Looper very strongly has noir elements and the cinematography, the mood, the, you know, the night shots, especially anything in that first 45 minutes before they get to that farmhouse. Um, but Ryan Johnson's very strongly influenced by it. And I'm just can't wait to see what he would do with it in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, that, that will be interesting. Definitely easy to say about Brick because it, it's, it's employing on its sleeve a lot of noir tropes. Yeah, I mean, their dialogue is written as the hard-boiled 1940s detectives. You know, teenagers don't speak like that, but he makes them speak like that. But but who cares? Let's make it happen. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. While while we're time traveling, I I thought I'd I'd also ask, um, um, you have here in the notes that, you know, Fritz Lang's Metropolis as kind of an early noir, and and maybe if you want to unpack that a little bit. Well, Sometimes uh, the big label uh, is uh, German Expressionism, and I think it's, uh, in some ways, the the point of that movie, which I've probably seen in four different cuts, uh, including the 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 probably terrible 1980s one that was, you know, uh, basically re recut and reassembled so that uh, the uh, Oh, uh, orchestrator of a lot of Italian films, uh, Giorgio Moroder, uh, could could release it as a soundtrack more than the, you know, the visuals and so forth. <laughs> Was it the same team that that edited Brazil for theatrical release? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, Moroder is the, is the fella uh, that uh, wrote that book about how to score films. I sent you, Mike, and I don't know oh, if right. you ever read it or not, but uh, <laughs> um, you know. If you've ever seen even one image of it, the the, the robotic woman uh, who uh, oversees this uh, you know uh, dystopian world, and uh, you know it's the the ultimate city, the metropolis in which uh, you know the, the human dignity has has fallen to its lowest ebb, and uh, you know Fritz Lang is is kind of a master of suggesting. Uh, through lighting and and uh, you know a, a character uh, and and certainly in this this uh, super robot sort of uh, uh, imaging that uh, you know life has reached its its nadir its its uh, its ending and there's there's nothing left except you know the mechanical reproduction of uh, of uh, Humankind as uh, obedient to the state, and uh, you know he he also did a movie called M that has this this basically a child molester character that Peter Laurie plays. It's probably the beginning of of all such kinds of movies, uh, and uh, you know Fritz Fritz Lang's uh, imagination is is quite frightening, I think, uh, and uh, and you know you know for some. Uh, you know he's he's uh, creating a, a a prescient view of what Nazi Germany is going to look like in in a few short years and uh, and you know it's it's very dark it literally is very dark uh, and and brightening it up and colorizing it as that Marauder film does uh, is you know to me exactly the you know wrong direction to go uh, but uh, that's. At, at sort of uh, what you end up doing, you know, fifty years later in trying to revivify a, a certain kind of uh, of element 
you know, using one aspect of, in this case, music to do it. And uh, it didn't work, or at least it didn't work for me. Uh, on, on my list of, of Coen Brothers movies, you know, certainly their original movie, Blood Simple, uh, and uh, the most uh, dark and and I, I, I've seen a lot of uh, Coen Brothers movies more than once. I've never seen uh, the, the Man Who Wasn't There. Is that the, that got the title right? Uh, with yeah, the, the George the, Clooney uh, black and white. Uh, I think Billy Bob. Billy Bob. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, Burn After Reading was one of the Clooney ones, and uh, Intolerable Cruelty, and yeah. Oh Brother. <laughs> Yeah, and so to me, they're, they're carrying on a, a tradition that that both uses the uh, the the mood, the feeling, the the uh, the the sense of foreboding, of of unsettledness, of perpetual uh, unease, uh, and also twisting that, turning it around because uh, you know, raising Arizona is ostensibly a comedy, but it's also got these other things going on too and and there there are scenes with those long high highway scenes that the shoot of the of the uh the uh, uh arizona uh, highway and and it just goes on and on and then suddenly uh the uh, john um john goodman yeah john goodman character arrives and uh it's 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 creepy and and uh you know, they're mixing all sorts of things in that movie and, and playing with one's uh, sense of uh, equilibrium uh, almost from the start. Yeah. And uh, that seems like a, a real trend. And not that this is a Coen Brothers episode, but it's sort of turning into one for at least a minute. Um, even in like the, their their newer, like Inside Lewin Davis, like the, John Goodman's character is kind of part of this world to like unsettle you a bit. Like his little road trip over to try to do his little audition, like that whole journey is just kind of creepy and kind of like depressing in different ways. And it's just, it's interesting how they do, you know, even if you may not always describe their entire film as noir, they do love to play with that, that distress and uncertainty and kind of just the cynical view of the world. Yeah, they almost cross over at times into very, now we can cross as far as you want into this territory, David Lynch land, um, just with, you know, bizarro characters and, you know, casting them with people with these interesting features or faces, you know, they like, like you said earlier, it's like the foray into the grotesque and, you know, how do we see that in light of, uh, you know... um, I don't know where America is at the time is, you know, but David Lynch is coming up and in, in, during all of this too. And ultimately I think his, his greatest noir for me will always be blue velvet, which was, you know, become so twisted as, of, as a mystery story. Um, but yeah, ow- owing a lot, everything to that genre and that inspiration for him. And you have the, the LA can, or is that lost highway or is it both of them are in LA? Lost highways out there. Yeah. And Mulholland drive. Oh Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so just a strong uneasiness, and Lynch has his way to like put the screwdriver in there and yeah, twist it. He's, so. he's willing to take it to eleven in an almost psychedelic direction sometimes, or just just yeah. weird, weird kinds of madness. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, kind of a, a side point, but I, but I'm I'm interested in what people of my generation uh, ended up doing as filmmakers, and of course. Uh, uh, there's uh, Vince Gilligan, who I guess is this weekend. He's on Me TV, right? 
uh, hosting a, a four-hour block uh, of uh, his favorite '60s TV shows, which includes Twilight Zone and and, and several others, and and how that got a hold of his storytelling genius for you know X Files for. Uh, did, did he have anything to do, I can't remember now, if he had anything to do with Millennium, uh, Vince Gillian, maybe not. Um, but, uh, that no. might have been Chris Carter still. Yeah. To, yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, Breaking Bad and, and now uh, Battle Creek. and uh, Better Call Saul. I don't even want to name it because that's not what this episode is about. <laughs> um, we should but, do a Better Call Saul episode, but later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you, know, if I had become a filmmaker... Uh, you know, I, I can imagine myself doing the sorts of things that, that Vince has done. But uh, as I, I dug a little deeper uh, in my own reminiscence and also just, just looking up what are, what are the actual facts here, um, you know, one of the, uh, I'll use the term showrunner again, even though it wasn't used in the early 60s, one of them was a, a man named Joseph Stefano. I don't know if either of you have ever heard that name, but he, he put together Outer, uh, Outer Limits, uh, which you know has all sorts of characteristics familiar to uh, uh, you know Twilight Zone fans, but he also wrote the screenplay, uh, adapted the screenplay for Psycho, and and you know another kind of great grotesque you know, noir t- type movie, and uh, he was responsible for a couple of the episodes of uh, of Outer Limits that I I prize the most. One was called. Uh, Demon with a Glass Hand, that Robert Culp, uh, a, a great character actor who played with Bill Cosby in the uh, early 60s uh, as uh, they were, you know, uh, itinerant spies you know, running around, very popular. It was one of the first uh, uh, network TV shows that, that you know, starred a, a, a black actor, in this case, a comedian who, you know, became a, a, a dramatic actor for this for this role. Uh, and, uh, you know, that has all, you know, it, it's just like the, every trope you can think of is in this episode. Lighting, uh, mysterious characters, beautiful, uh, uh, you know, femme fatale uh, type characters. Uh, and, it, you know, it really is, is worth watching just to see both the heritage and the provocation it would be for someone uh, who later becomes a, a filmmaker. Uh and, uh, and the other th- interesting thing I found out is that the creator of the Waltons, Earl Hamner Jr., that everybody you know knows from the the endearing close of each of each episode, if they've ever seen it, you know, good night, and everybody you know says good night across the as each light gets turned <laughs> out. Um, he he wrote uh, three or four Twilight Zone episodes for for Rod Serling uh, and. Uh, and and if you if you look at those episodes, you you can see a sort of of sinister edge to saying good night to John Boy, <laughs> in a way. Uh, John Big that, that, That's just, yeah, that's just before they turn the light out, and uh, yeah. and you know there's just just enough of an edge there, so that it's not only a comforting thought that the the family is saying good night together. But just that, just that little delay, that little sense of, well, what if somebody doesn't say goodnight? You know, or what, what if the light doesn't go off? Or what if it suddenly comes back? You know, there are all sorts of things you could play with that in, in, uh, 
uh, in, in reviewing what, what the style of that particular kind of writing uh, in uh, episodic TV was, uh, you know, late in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then when I found out, oh, yeah, he, he ended up writing for Rod Serling. So, you know, you know the, the tumblers sort of, you know, uh, line up and you think, wow, all these guys were kind of doing the same thing. They're reflecting a certain kind of American unease, an American sense of betrayal, an American sense of, well, if, if we can't resolve something in the 60s, then let's do a show that's about the 40s and 50s because it was good back then. But then you back up. <laughs> The, the the historical camera and you find out they were looking back a couple of decades before that and so everybody's always you know unable to relax in their particular era thinking if i reach back and then you finally get to fritz lang and you think there's nowhere to go <laughs> there's there's no floor to to retreat to <laughs> Uh, one other angle I didn't know if either of you would have something to say about would be the the music of noir and just I, I thought of this just because you were bringing up Psycho and Hitchcock in general and Psycho I mean everyone can immediately was already hearing the the violin screeches from the from Psycho um, but just the you know what how noir may have helped musicians explore some new territory um, with uh, I would argue minimalism in the in the music. You know, long patches of silence. Um, you know, very piano, like almost everything in very, very tropey traditional noir. You could imagine being in a, a jazz nightclub, um, driven mostly by piano, and just kind of, you know, any comments on the, on the soundtrack and music of noir. Well, one one the aspect to noir soundtracks definitely, if there is one, you know, like you say, there's a lot of silence in these as well. Um, was I think it gave composers a chance to let music be a character as well and to play its own part. Um, I felt like, you know, in traditional films, you know, music is there to enhance the emotional tone of what's going on at that point. But then, you know, a composer would get a chance to do a noir film and be like, oh, I get to like play. I'm going to like, you know, get a new sandbox here and my music is going to draw attention to itself um, by design, right? Like, I think that's definitely a big difference in, in regular soundtracking is music shouldn't draw attention to itself, you know, or, you know, it's gets a little gaudy or over the top with it, but, you know, noir gets to really embrace that side of it. Well, if you listen to the, uh, the theme songs of these uh, 50s and early 60s uh, episodic television shows, there's definitely a range but there's also this brassy Peter Gunn, uh, who was a, who was a uh, private eye. Uh, his uh, uh, his show is introduced with this sense of okay, here is the uh, the the super private eye who's going to solve everything in the first five minutes. Not not in the uh, you know Sherlock sense of you know higher cerebral function and, and being able to observe everything. This is a guy who leads with his fists. You know, he, <laughs> he he's the guy who's going to beat it out of you. He's the guy who's going to, you know, get um, uh, you know, Joe or or Bob and, you know, haul him in and and uh, but on the other hand, uh Richard Diamond the the uh, uh David Jansen character it's much more subtle and jazzy and you know a smoky the smoky room sort of uh 
attitude of of the of the sound and uh, you know discordant notes. You know, uh, you know, as some some jazz musicians can do purposefully and, and elegantly. And uh, you know, I I've, I found something yesterday. Uh, the guy who had worked on many of the Monk episodes that was on USA Television um, put together this uh, this uh, sort of YouTube collage of the Quinn Martin produced shows of the 60s because they all they all have a, a certain flavor and, and this is worth tracking down we'll put it in the show notes uh, you know every every uh, episode of the fugitive and every uh, series thereafter that he produced because the fugitive was so popular that Quinn Martin ended up you know his name is on so many things particularly on uh, ABC because ABC was in last place in in network TV ratings and so they were the place to take Every pilot that you could think of, and and there, you know, ABC will try it. Sort of like Fox was about twenty years ago. They'll put anything on. Uh, maybe maybe it's still that NBC way. NBC today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, the uh, the Quinn Martin production always has these these uh, 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 very uh, uh, breathy uh, uh, introductions. Tonight on Streets of San Francisco, a Quinn Martin production, so-and-so faces his greatest challenge, you know, whatever it is. And, and he's kind of like that uh, in a world uh, voice, only this is much earlier, and they did it with every episode. Uh, well, this guy produced, uh, as I just mentioned, the Streets of San Francisco, which had uh, Carl Malden and Michael Douglas, who was, you know, was an early TV star. And uh, he he's he had Leslie Nielsen as the lead in a detective show set in Los Angeles called The New Breed, and everything that Larry, you know Leslie Nielsen eventually represents in terms of parody and and satire and just silliness he exemplifies <laughs> in these in these shows. And The New Breed refers to this crack squad of of L.A. detectives who are like the Marines, you know, only a few good men can be on the new breed. Well, it lasted about 18 episodes before ABC had to give up on it. But, uh, you know, Qu- Quinn Martin was a power in the, in the 60s. And, you know, you can almost see as the, the 60s fade, that kind of television, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, private eye is exhausted until 10 years later. Then you can have Remington Steele. Then you can have Moonlighting. You can have, you know, Bruce Willis and, and uh, Pierce Brosnan return. But you know, there's this, this period that America is exhausted by that genre, just as there's not many, you know, war shows on. Early 60s has combat and 12 o'clock high. These are network TV shows, not not just you know movie based uh, uh, writing and uh, and uh, producing, and uh, you know America's tired of war. They're, they're they're tired of bad wars, and so you have something ridiculous occurring in the middle sixties. Hogan's Heroes, a comedy set in a Nazi prison camp. I mean, how how could that be? Uh, and CBS of all networks. Uh, you know, this is this is like an ABC show. This is this is what a Fox show should be. But why is CBS doing this show? Uh, of course, that was the network of Andy Griffith and and Gomer Pyle, uh, and so uh, it's just just a, a, a weird juxtaposition of genres and and uh, attitudes. But I credit ABC and and uh, producers like 
uh, Roy Huggins and uh, Joseph Stefano and Quinn Martin for for really rolling the dice. And uh, you know, if you're a pre- in, in one of the uh, the people who uh, benefits from all this in the seventies. And I, I should have written his name down. He's very familiar, but he's the one who produces the A Team, and uh, you know all, all of these. Uh, uh, he, he's the fellow who's a picture at the end of every show, uh, you know, whipping the the uh, the paper out of the typewriter. You know, he's he's triumphed again with this you know, new show, which always uh, they seem to appear on NBC. So they switch places in the seventies. We'll have to uh, include him in the show notes because he's he's worth remembering. Um, and I, I'm drawing a blank. And the producer like of Eighteen, you are, you are yeah, for for TV. Uh, Stephen Cannell. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Cannell. Stephen J. Cannell. He's uh, uh, who is sort of schooled under uh, you know Roy Huggins and and later uh, uh, Quinn Martin. But uh, you know, he becomes a producer and the showrunner and the you know originator of, of a number of shows. Uh, uh, I found and, the picture uh, of him pulling out of the typewriter, so we'll yeah, have to at least include yeah. that. Too bad our listeners notes. can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was uh, every video it had, he pulls a p- piece of paper out and it flips around the screen and turns digital and it becomes his logo. Yeah, I definitely remember seeing that all the time. Yeah. Um, I thought of a maybe a, a nice you know wrap up question that we could pose to to the audience is uh, if if all of us want to select one thing noir related that you you would maybe like hold up as like go and watch this you know and I'm I'll leave the the criteria intentionally vague whether you think it's the greatest thing in noir or just some new thing you encountered recently you know um, what would you recommend people go out and start with or, or check out I'll have to. Uh... And I always say, go watch the pilot and tell me you're not going to want to find out what happens. Um, but I'm always very surprised at how very few people have actually watched Twin Peaks. Um, it's I always throw it out there because it's streaming on everything all the time. Plus, it's since they're coming back now, 25 years later, you got just enough time to binge on it. You know, just do the first 15 or so episodes, and then if you get really don't like it, I understand because the second season kind of goes off the rails, but. You know, for just pristine scene writing and, and, you know, noir mood setting and, you know, the soundtrack alone, I mean, Twin Peaks is a a jazz club soundtrack, you know, with, you know, the light drums and the brushes and, you know, setting this perfect small town murder mood of like who done it and then the mystery goes from there um i have to say you gotta you've been putting it off i know you have just go <laughs> go watch the twin peaks pilot and it'll take you through the rest at least till you figure out what happened i'm gonna uh throw a curve here and one that we didn't talk about at all which was also a quinn martin production uh it was called the invaders which is a prelude for so much. Uh, it, it, it doesn't go very long. I think it's two seasons, but it has been released on DVD, and, and uh, I don't know how often it, it shows up in any streaming service, but uh, The Invaders was an X-Files-type type show. It was also, in, in, in some ways, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, but it's, it's, you know, basically there's been an invasion uh, it, it's come secretly in the night, and one man knows about it, David Vinson. And, uh, and you know, 
it's kind of incredible. Again, for, for me, it made my heart race each week because he was always in danger, not of being, you know, found and brought to justice. He's in danger of being killed as the only earthling who knows that a, uh, a, you know, an alien race from a dying planet has come to earth. And I think, uh, you know, the, the noirish, uh, uh, episodic nature of this makes it uh, perfect for a binge weekend uh, if it if it would become available. And, uh, you know, why I don't own this, I can't tell you because this is a perfect birthday present or, or Christmas present. If anybody wants to, you know, gift me with that, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. But uh, this reluctant hero is just like Richard Kimball, only he has something quite valuable and important uh, and, you know, there's also all sorts of, uh, you know, mixed in is, you know, uh, attitudes about the Kennedy assassination, you know, di- you know kind of uh, obliquely, you know, resonating on the, on the edges. Uh, and it really is worth uh, uh, anybody's uh, time to track that one down. Excellent. Um, and I guess for mine, I, I'll just go back to Dark City. I just, I just love mainly because I know that most people have not seen it. And I think it's just one that uh, plays with noir. And yeah, I, I guess if you've, if you've seen zero noir films, maybe you wouldn't want to start with it. But um, just just having the, the tropes in mind, just going into that weird sci-fi movie and, and seeing how it plays with that and twists it into a new direction, um, it's it's just a lot of fun. And it's it's delightfully creepy you get a nice key for sutherland before 24 being a, a, a little uh, timid scientist and you get these these the fedoras are on on the creepy people and, and it's it's very well done yeah and uh roger ebert did a version of this released uh, commentary right on uh, dvd yeah it's one of his greatest films of the 90s um all always the, again underscored get the v- director's cut that doesn't have the voiceover narration <laughs> which sounds like contradictory advice for noir but it, it's it's the right advice completely um i mean i also i mean i guess everyone loves an underdog story i always think of dark city as it came out and then immediately the matrix and some other movies kind of like commercially overshadowed it and kind of rendered it forgotten and so I'm always kind of wanting to sing the song of Dark City as like when I went back and watched The Matrix recently, which you could argue has a, some noir elements, maybe, um, you know, the special effects were landmark and the story is ridiculous. And then some of the plots are in the <laughs> performance. And there's lots of things that just seem silly now. And maybe that's just because it's been so influential that it seems like a cliche, even though it invented a lot of, of special effects techniques. But um I always like to bring up Dark City as like you you saw the Matrix and you missed this one. Go see this one. Sounds good. Yep. So with that, we have Some Pulp Episode 7. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, to check out some show notes for links to, to all the various forms of noir we, we mentioned or referenced, including some videos and pictures, um, head to sunriserobot.net slash sumpulp slash seven. And... Uh, we love interaction. We love feedback. So find us on Twitter. Um, I'm Medwards Music on Twitter, and, and uh, I'll let you guys say your own Twitter handles here. Sure, you can find me at pseudo Justin, and mine is Bruce BGSU. All right. And so if the, if there's anything wrong we said, or anything you want to set us straight on, or anything you want to praise us for, by all means tweet at us. 
Um, you can also support our network, Sunrise Robot, which makes this show possible. You can head to patreon.com slash sunrise robot. And uh, if you're inclined, directly support us. And we love that. And uh, uh, Bruce Edwards, host of the show, is also one of our prominent Patreon supporters. So thank you for supporting Sunrise Robot. You're welcome. Yourself. Um, as always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>